Welcome back to Real Voices of the Game. I'm Dave D'Agostino, and I'm joined here by our co-hosts and stars of this show, Mark Wiley and Will George. This is a day at the yard, Common Sense Pitching with Wiley and Will, episode 398 on our network. Uh, we're going strong here. Before we bring on our two, two co-hosts and our special guest today, we do have a packed show for you today. Just want to thank our audience, closing in on 62,000. Challenged you guys to hit 60,000 by Christmas, and you did it last week. Then I upped the ante just like a coach does to 61. You did it again. So I decided to push the envelope one more time to 62. We're 400 new listeners shy of that mark and hope we can hit it by the new year here. So challenging you guys to give this episode five stars, write some great comments underneath it, and that'll help us battle the analytics of the podcast world, just like we do in Major League Baseball. To our sponsor, Blackout Coffee, their slogan, Be Awake, Not Woke. Uh, We appreciate your support. Coffee is on the fellas this month uh, in December, and rumor has it they're paying for it all in 2024. So when you use Blackout Coffee, we'll send links out there, both on social and in our show notes. Use either Mark or Will's code, get you 20% off at checkout. Mark Wiley's code is capital letters now, M-A-R-K-W, M-A-R-K-W 20. Get you 20% off at checkout on Mark. And then Will George is Will G, all caps, W-I-L-L-G 20. Use that at checkout, get you 20%. Alternate the guys so you don't break the bank on them, uh, but coffee's on them through the new year. And to our buddy, Ted Kubiak, first guest ever on our show, three-time world champion, shortstop for the Oakland A's. He told me to stop pumping the book because you can't keep uh, can't keep them on the shelves now. But we're going to do it one more day, old school and how to field a ground ball. Two books that should be on every baseball lover's bookshelf. And if you've got a baseball lover in your family at Christmas, great stocking stuffer for them. So with that, fellas, I'll turn it over to you. Well, I'll tell you what. Um, this is a longtime friend and uh, and 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 compadre uh, that I worked with with Colorado Rockies. Uh, for many years. Um, I can't tell you, uh, uh, I can't give more praise to someone as far as his organizational skills, having your back, getting stuff done, um, uh, being open-minded, and just being a really good friend and a a great work, uh, a great worker. Um, uh, I couldn't have been able to do my job without Doug as my right-hand man. So, uh, uh, I haven't said that. I'll, I'll go through the bio. This is Doug Linton. Um, Doug went to high school at Canyon High School in Anaheim. Um, he graduated in 83. He went to University of California, Irvine, 84 through 86, was drafted in the 43rd round by the Toronto Blue Jays in 86, played 17 years in the minor leagues with uh, Toronto Blue Jays, California Angels, New York Mets, Kansas City Royals, Minnesota Twins, Baltimore Orioles, Colorado Rockies, and Atlanta Braves. So you can tell this man is a baseball lifer. I played seven years in the big leagues with Toronto, California Angels, the Mets, the Royals, the Orioles, and the Blue Jays. So, uh, you know, having said that, he also went to Korea and played – uh, for the LG Twins in Korea in the KBO League. And then he went to Taiwan 
and played for the uni president of Chinese Baseball uh, League. Um, unbelievable. He That doesn't even count all the years he played winter baseball um, in different countries and, and uh, in South America. Uh, then he, after all those years, which is about 18 years in professional baseball playing, he turned to coaching. Um, we were lucky enough to have him in the Rockies as a minor league pitching coach from A through AAA from 2006 to 2011. Uh, 2012, he was a minor league roving pitching coordinator. And 2013 to the present time, he's a Rockies organization pitching coordinator. So uh, you can see he's done a lot and we're going to get a lot of information from him uh, over his travels around the world. Um, awards and accomplishments in 1983, uh, Canyon High School voted him to the All-Century team. In 1986, he was MVP of the Alaskan Gold Panners. That's an elite college league in Alaska. Um, in 92, he was a member of the Blue Jays that won the World Series. In 96, he was second to Greg Maddox in strikeout-to-walk ratio. Um, in 2002, he led the International League in strikeouts. In 2007, uh, he, with the Rockies <clears throat> as an organizational uh, instructor, he was a, a National League uh, champion with the Rockies. So he's had some accomplishments. I probably missed some of the other accomplishments because he played so many places, so many times, um, did so many unbelievable things. And Having said that all, I just want to welcome you, Doug, and I've got some good questions for you. I appreciate all that, Mark, and the accolades. It's it's great, and it's always great talking with you. Yeah, you know, it's funny when I do these bios, sometimes I learn stuff about, even when they're my best friends, I learn stuff about them I didn't know. And in your case, there's so much to delve into. You know, I used to ask you all the time, what was it like playing in Taiwan? What was it like in Korea? You know, I used to ask all that stuff, but those are things I never experienced. And it's always nice to know them. You know, like, having said that, when you were young, it didn't seem to be what you were. One, you weren't one of those highly recruited guys, even with success. Uh, you had to grind your whole career. Did you use that as a, a motivation or like a chip on your shoulder? I, I say you, you probably could use that as a motivation, which I did. I mean, obviously, growing up in Southern California, uh, I wanted to go to UCLA like a lot of, a lot of kids wanted to. Um, went up there and um, Adams at the time said, you know, I could walk on and we'll see what happens. And, um, you know, maybe we can give you a scholarship in the future years. Well, then UC Irvine approached me because I, I had good good grades through, through high school. And Coach Duracus at the time there, he told me, you know what, you come here, you'll pitch against UCLA your freshman year. So wound up – and, and they gave me the scholarship, so I wound up going to UC Irvine. And, yes, it was – you know, we weren't a powerhouse, but um, we did have some guys that got drafted out of Irvine. You know, um, Brady Anderson, the biggest name there. But it was – it motivated you, especially when you went and played those big Division One schools. Yeah, I was – I went to Cal Poly in Pomona, and it was the same way with us. And we at that time, we were – they're Division Two now, but at the time I played, we were Division One, and we were inter- independent, so we got to play all SC and UCLA and Arizona and Stanford. We got to play all those teams, and I always loved pitching against them because we had no scholarships, and and they were laden with scholarships. So it, it, it's a motivational factor, and uh, you took advantage of it. it. 
you know, having said that, if you were, uh, what advice would you give young players and their parents um, to get the most out of their ability, you know, to, to, to get to a position where they might get a scholarship or might be play, be able to play pro ball? Well, I mean, the big thing nowadays is, is the travel leagues. I mean, back in our day, Mark, we didn't have those. But um, I would say, obviously, you got to practice um, and, and do what you can. I, went, I happened to go to a pitching school at the time, and it was um, Ron Lefevre Pitching School out in Orange County. Um, if there's avenues like that or instructors, definitely go in that direction. Um, also play as many sports as you can to a point maybe until you, you, you get into high school, but it, it'll keep you athletic. I played basketball, you know, and then baseball, and then finally just turned, you know, solely to baseball. But um, the multiple sports just keeps you athletic, keep your feet in good athletic um, routines and stuff like that. And then give your give yourself some time to rest. A lot of times in these um, warm climate states, kids are going, you know, 24-7 for 12 months, and they never get that time to rest. But um, definitely find some time to at least, you know, take a break here and there. You know, it's funny. You know, we've talked to a lot of guys, including Hall of Famers. Jim Palmer said the same thing, that, you know, playing other sports and how much that helps you. And uh, we're a big proponent of that on our podcast. Yes, I think it's very important. You know, I, I, ironically, this morning that article came out about Yamamoto, how uh, he's not a weightlifter. He's an athletic movement person and does stuff for flexibility and athletic body strength movements and long toss, and he throws a javelin. He does some different things that, uh, you know, when you watch this kid 25 years old, what he's capable of doing, uh, you know, you see why he signed a 12-year, $325 million contract or whatever. But uh, he's going to be fun to watch. But, you know, maybe maybe our side will uh, get out of the weight room and, <laughs> get, you, you know, get a little bit more traditional stuff going. You, th- you think that would be good to bring up in um, spring training, Mark, throwing a javelin? Uh, probably not. Probably not. <laughs> probably not. The, probably not the javelin. I, you know, I, I never, you know, I don't know. I, and I've said this before, and I've told you this, and I've, I've told our people this when I was with the Rockies. It, it you know, there's been tests, uh, you know, scientific tests done on all kinds of different activities, whether it be ballet dancing or pitching or hitting or running or whatever, and. Uh, you know, as long as your strength is where it should be and you're not hurt, that the best activity you can do is the act, actually the activity you're going to compete with. Right. And uh, I think sometimes that's lost. And a lot of these gurus, uh, they say, do this or that. It'll make you a better player. But being playing will make you a better player right. before that will. Um, and people that have never done any kind of strength training or really much training at all, of course, they're going to get tremendous gains, regardless of what sport you're talking about. But once you're up to a, 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 a an efficient strength that can handle what your performance is, I think doing the activity is the most important. Yeah. Well, I, I believe it in the article, it said he was a real big long tosser, but he does do some javelin throwing too. But 
uh, it just, you know, talked to somebody that had looked at him biomechanically and they said that, uh, you know, he has the big, you know, Asian paws and a lot of different things that you, you, you worry whether he's staying connected and his biomechanics, I think we're off the chart for that too. So, you know, it's funny, you know, the, the, the Japanese always had that pause. Yeah. I don't know who started it there, but you know, there's different types of pauses, you know, guys bounce their hands. Um, they do different things with their legs um, to, to have kind of a, a connected pause in there. Um, uh, it's their own rhythm and timing. And that's why it's really important for a pitcher to find what his own is and not try to copy somebody else. Agreed. Now, Doug, you, you've been in baseball your whole life. Um, what are some of the changes uh, that you like in, in, in ones you don't, don't really like? Well, obviously, there's been huge changes over the last, you know, three, four years with, you know, the pitch clock and um, the bases, all that stuff. Um, data, a lot of data. I mean, this is this is huge now, and, and you know, kids going from high school to to college and getting all these, um, you know, the TrackMan readings, Rapsodo, all all the stuff. Data has just um, immerse itself into the game and if you can't speak this language to these kids coming out of these division one schools it's just hard to to get their trust now once they get drafted so you got to know the language you got to know the the material that is being um, brought up to you and being able to talk it and um, you can do that that's that's just what's huge Um, probably the one thing you know through the last couple of years, I, I probably don't like the, the most is just the um, the amount of pit, pickoffs you get at bases in the rule yeah. changes. Um, Terrible. Yeah, I mean, I, I was a guy that I had to had to do everything to be successful, and holding runners was my big thing. And um, I had a good pickoff. I mean, I remember one year in AAA, I picked off seventeen guys for a right hander. Wow! But it's just Limiting them to two and three, the guy gets second base. I, I think it's it's a joke. Yeah. Um, maybe I, w- I wouldn't mind if it was four. Um, the the clock, the pitch clock. I thought I think that's done a very good job. I don't mind that. And now they've just said they're going to even uh, shorten that a little bit. I think I think they're right where they're at right now, and to shorten it another two seconds, I I, I think we're getting into an area that, you know, even a pitcher needs a recovery in between pitches. And it's almost like you're going to get up there, like you're throwing batting practice going, 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 and you don't get to take a breath. Yeah, there's, you know, the bigger bases, all that kind of stuff kind of gnaws at me because it changes the game. So so the records aren't the same as they were when, say, Ricky Henderson was there. And the other one, and Mike Hargrove, in, in our, when he was on our show, he said he just hates that where they put the guy at second base. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, to me, that just changes the whole game. I mean, part of the game is having a good team is you actually have better players than the other team. And yep. you know what? If they can't get them to second base in an extra inning game legitimately, maybe they don't deserve to win because they could get a fluke. 
because it's it's like somebody's already given them an opportunity that they would have never been able to get on their own. So you get a team that shouldn't win, they win. Yep. Um, you know, to me, uh, whoever came up with that idea, whoever okayed it, if they were a baseball guy, guess what? You're not really a baseball guy. No. If you if you came up or you endorsed that, that's ridiculous. And, uh, you know, I'd love to talk to some of these, the advisors that gave the, the green light. I don't think they gave the green light. I think they just overvoted them. Um, because I can't see some of these people that have worked in Major League Baseball um, saying that was a good idea. Uh, same with some of these other things. Yeah, I agree yeah. fully. You know, I mean, I think we've said it on here many times. They're not going to legislate the game to make it better. We're going to make the game better by playing the game better and teaching our players to play the game better. And, you know, it's just like government can't make make the country a better place. We make the country a better place through personal responsibility. Doug, how do you incorporate all these new new rules into your preparation for the pitchers like them or don't like them obviously they're there um how, how does that adjust your your training with the current pitchers in the rocky system well it's, it's definitely a, a learning period and we 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 implement it right from the get-go in spring training um obviously now we're gonna have to get it down by two more seconds with the pitch clock but um we'll we'll have portable clocks on our on our um fields at spring training and they're not getting penalized in spring training, but um, they're getting a, you know, being able to adapt to it as soon as possible. So we got it in our games and just trying to move forward with it. And what, what's the most challenging one to implement? I know you said personally, you don't like the pickoff ones. How do you, how do you take that rule? And, and what do you, what are your messages to your pitcher? How do you strategize? I guess without, you know, giving the other, MLB clubs that are listening, uh, your personal <laughs> strategies, but just to give us some high level things. Well, obviously you got to use them in, in the situations that are probably the most that you, you have an opportunity maybe to pick somebody off. You got a, pl- a close game at the, at the end of a game where you got to conserve these, got these pickoffs for fast runners. Um, I think there was one thing we, we read a couple of years ago that, it was a study in AAA for any pitcher that picked off twice. Obviously, the third pickoff, if you didn't pick them off, was a balk. But any pitcher that picked off twice, it was 100% in two years that they didn't never threw another pickoff over to first base. So, I mean, just reading that, I mean, uh, a runner, could, you know, if they knew that information, which I'm sure they do now, they could get the biggest lead possible because they know that pitcher's not going to pick over there. So it's it's just using this these pickoffs at the right opportunity, not not wasting them, especially on on guys that can't run. So, and, and the big thing is is with the limited pickoffs now you just have to you have to be one three to the plate. You have to vary vary your moves. Um, you you can't always be in the the same re- rhythm all the time. Different looks, different sets, and and you just can't you can't be the same. So we try to teach these guys right from the get-go. We have a, we have a station um, in spring training that we go over this. Our, we call it our cadence station, and we go over this with these kids. And it's a learning period. Hey, hey Doug, I had a question. Um, 
the thing I noticed over the last year or so, um, I think because we all pitched in an era, Mark and you and I, in an era where stolen bases were more prevalent, we were taught to recognize leads, recognize tells that base runners have. Like I see a lot of pitchers that look over and I know the guy's going and they never throw. And like be, be, because it wasn't part of the game for so long, the stolen base kind of went away at all the levels of minor league baseball. And, you know, you might run across uh, a few guys that run, but we, you know, we played in an era where there were two or three guys that were going to steal bases almost every night against you. Oh, and yeah. You, you know, you need to be able to recognize things. And, uh, you know, hopefully that, that, that'll that be part of the teaching to recognize tells. Like the guy who takes the big lead, but he, you know he's not going, but then he shortens up and now you know he's going or whatever. Those type of things. Oh, yeah. I mean, this is, this is something that, you know, like I said, uh, I took pride in holding runners. And obviously yeah. I, had a, I had a good move and I could th- pick guys off. So. You you'd come into, a, you know, playing that team that night. I always picked up the the stat pack that was on the table, and I looked through who was who were the base stealers. Yeah. Or if I was pitching, you know, the third game of a series, you watch the guys get on base, and just like you said, yeah. I, I would even watch if they were pe- peeking in on a catcher. Yeah, yeah. And guys no. just don't do this anymore. You know, it's funny. Like you know, I be at games with some older guys like myself, and you know. Like I didn't even hear it from the dugout throw over. Like, <laughs> like we'd be sitting up in the stands and like some older pitchers. We, I was sitting with Roy Smith one night, and he goes throw over. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> like you know, recognize the damn lead. He's going. Yep. <laughs> you know, but it 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 uh, you know it, it it will be a learning process because hopefully it becomes part of the game because it does make the game more exciting. Well, you know, they also, the, the trips to the mound for the pitching coaches, yeah. um, you know, uh, you know, I understand if you used them up, uh, they give you another one in the ninth inning or something. I don't know how many they give you in extra innings, but, uh, you know, to me, um, I didn't like that because there were times when the whole game could change that I'd have to make a trip because I had information or I knew something uh, about the pitcher uh, that would help him uh, to eliminate a big inning. And, uh, and now you got to watch it all the time. Now you go, well, should I, shouldn't I, should I, shouldn't I? I? That bothers me. It bothers me because it lessens the game. Now I understand they got these, I don't know, they got headsets or P- I, I don't even know what they have now. But I see him call timeout and say, oh, I can't hear something. I, I don't know whether – is that from the catcher to the pitcher? Yeah, that's uh, only from the catcher to the pitcher, and it's only only to call pitches. Pitches and What pick, is it? Does he like press a button and it says fastball in? Exactly. Exactly that. Is that what it does? Yeah, he'll say fastball in, fastball away, up, down, you know, breaking ball. Um, well, you know, they call all the – in the NFL, they call the game – and they had the headset, the the the, uh, the quarterback, and all that. You know, like years ago, before they had any of this stuff, I was trying to get a, a, a headset for instructional league to where they would have an earpiece in 
the pitcher, and then the catcher would have one in. Yeah. So, you know, you could do it with a conference call, I guess, if you had your, uh, you know, had them connected. But I always thought that was a learning, that would be a really good learning tool. Not that it would ever happen in a game because the player, the catcher or the pitcher would have responsibility, but they would learn what to look for. Yeah. And the pitching coach could go, okay, now it's time. You've been away. The guy's leaking. He's reaching out over the plate. Come in on him now with a fastball. And then they would jam him, and then they would that would register. So when they were calling the game themselves, they recognized the same things. Um, yeah, have a have I, the I, mic I, have the mic where it says throw over. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay, throw over now. I mean, you know, that's what I guess that's what they do in the NFL. But they got a lot of plays and defenses and stuff to deal with. I guess it makes more sense with them to me. Now, um, you know. You obviously have had a passion. You've been a gamer, a lifer, your uh, baseball your whole life, and you've played in eight organizations, major league organizations, Winter Ball, Pacific Rim, all these things. Um, can you give us something, let's say, like from the minor leagues, from Winter Ball, um, major leagues, Latin America, like one thing from each of those those uh, areas that you stopped at? Uh, that you learned something from that was maybe, maybe even more interesting uh, from the Pacific Rim teams. Yeah. I I think the big thing there is just being open-minded. The, the work ethic really changes, especially when you go over to the Asian teams, it's, you know, in the States, it's more quality over quantity. You go over there, it's quantity over quality, but I think um, you're immersing yourself into their culture. Um, and to, to accept that, uh, it really, it means a lot to those people, the Koreans or the Taiwanese and everything that you're trying, um, even trying to speak their language and participating um, in their drills, everything. It is a lot. I mean, we would, we would have eight hour practices um, over in, in the Pacific countries and um there was times I would stay out there where the other American on my team, you know, he would go, you know, into the clubhouse. His day was over after he got his workout. But I, I mean, they wouldn't even have pitchers that shagged over there. All the, all the um, coaches did the shagging out in the outfield and I would go out in the outfield and shag. And they said, you don't have to be out here. And I go, well, I want to be out here. But I think the big thing is just being open-minded and, and, you know, trying to delve into their culture. I was a guy that I didn't like to, you know, be locked up in a room. I, I like to explore. I'd go out and, and, you know, just see what, what was around where I was at. And, and, you know, it was easy in Seoul when I was in Korea because that's what was our base. Um, Taiwan, I was in Tainan, which is the oldest city in, in Taiwan. So that was, that was kind of difficult, but still just open-minded for me. How about how about winter ball? What'd you learn in winter ball or, or get out of that? The competition factor. Obviously farmer, you're gone. <laughs> yeah. I mean, obviously, um it's a short season. You gotta win. Um, it brings out every every time you're on that mound. And, and I'm not saying you're not you're not competing every time you're out, but it is huge stakes every time you're out there. Because just like Will said, if you if you don't perform, you're gone. And I think I was fortunate enough, um, you know, Toronto sent me over to Venezuela and I, I did well. And um, I wound up playing 13 years of winter ball. And 
Wow. Yeah, you tell American to do that, it's not going to happen. But I, you know, Doug, I I wish we'd go back to sending our kids the winter ball because it's more like the big leagues. You're going to go win. It makes you more competitive. It makes you learn how to pitch under that pressure to win and hit under the pressure to win and make plays under the pressure to win rather than uh, the executive league in Arizona <laughs> where, <laughs> where, you know, it, it is what it is. You and know? It, yeah. And it, it's their, it is their big leagues over there yeah. when they're playing. I mean, I remember my first year and we're talking early nineties um, in, in the Dominican and I had an outfield on my team of Geronimo Barroa, Sammy Sosa, and Raul Mondesi for Escajillo. Oh, wow. and, yeah. and, yeah, and we were playing Lise in the championships, and they're throwing out um, Ramon Martinez, Pedro Martinez, one of the um, Perez yeah. brothers, and Rijo. I mean, yeah. it's it's just unbelievable what, no, what kind of talent is playing. Yeah. No, it was uh, – I coached uh, in Agulhas in 91, and – you know, Escojito and Lise and, you know, you go over and play Estrellas and uh, the, the La Romana team. Uh, it was good. Yeah. Everybody came to kick your ass every night. <laughs> yeah. Know. How about going 20 years earlier than that when I went? <clears throat> guys made no money in the major leagues, so we had all-star players all over the field. Oh, yeah. Yeah. In, the, in in the Venezuela and the Dominican, because you know they needed to make that extra. Hell, they made they might make twelve, fifteen grand uh, during the winter when they were only making like thirty or twenty five in the big leagues. Yeah, you know, like yep. it, it was a big deal, and it was big, big deal when you got invited to winter ball oh, if you yeah. were an American guy. No yeah. doubt. And but you were right, you guys went home, man. I mean, you know now you know, now a guy, they'll send somebody over and the guy will have two starts and they say, okay, that's good. Come on home. It's Christmas. You know, it's like, what? The guy missed the entire season and make him pitch the whole year in winter ball. Yes. You know, like that's how you learn. We talk about repeating. Uh, It's an overprotective thing, which ends up backfiring anyway. Yes. You know, and, and the level of, uh, excitement in the game you know uh, doug those friday night games in the capital and and <laughs> you know when you're playing lise or escojito or lise escojito game on a friday night you know you walk out of there 12 30 uh four and a half hours later but holy crap what uh i mean the games were incredible oh yeah the, the you got the presidentes rolling and the rum yeah. going and it, the yeah. fans are into it yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. They used to start fires in the stands oh. in Venezuela. <laughs> you know, I played in Mexico after being in Venezuela, and it was way more like the States in Mexico. Everybody brought their kids. They sat there very orderly. You'd walk out to your bus through the crowd, and they'd be all real nice and everything. Everybody would be holding hands with their families. Walk, And I'm going, wow, this is not like Venezuela was when I played there. Yeah. 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 Sure. So, you know change course here a little bit you know you had to deal with a lot of different types of pitchers as a player and a coach you know during your career uh, who did you play with or coach that you felt really epitomized what a pitcher should be wow that's I mean obviously I mean the teams that I played for you know coming up with Toronto and championship teams and 
and bouncing around. Um, there was two guys, especially early in my career when I was young, that I made sure I was out in the bullpen to watch them warm up. And one was Brett Saberhagen, and the other one was um, David Cohn. Just how they went about their business in a bullpen prior to a game. Um, work ethic. Probably when I was with the Orioles, um, Musina and Scotty Erickson um, just worked their butts off. Um, really, and you're and you're talking Musina, Hall of Famer, obviously. Um, just great individuals, and, and they got the the best out of their their talents. I mean, they were they were unbelievable. Just watch what they did, you know, on the field and off. You know, it's funny. I had I had Scott Erickson when I coached for the Orioles, and he was more old school than anybody I ever had, as far as his sides. Oh, yeah. you know, I didn't. He was uh, he did more than he probably should have because he eventually. I mean, he I think he wore his arm out, and he had to have Tommy John. But he used to throw twenty five minute sides, relentless. You know, like just just following the glove around, dropping breaking balls, just. Pound. He wanted to satisfy himself, and he had such work ethic. I, you know, in some ways, I think it it hurt him um, because he was a really was an overworker. But you know, he was a veteran guy, and you talk to him about it. But you really, as a coach, you have to kind of let those guys run because you can't stop them from doing what they do. Oh yeah, I mean, my first year in that organization, the Orioles. Uh, you know, we go out spring training the first day, and Scotty Erickson doesn't have a a, a th- catch partner. And I said, well, I'll, I'll play catch with him. And everybody's saying, you don't know what you're getting into. Yeah. And he was a big, long toss guy. And I, I liked a long toss too. But it, just like what you said, Mark, it, he was out there. I mean, and every throw, every – I mean, guys were done throwing and we're still throwing. Yeah, he, he was – he was if I talk about a pitcher, he was an animal. I know that you're friends with Pat Hinkin, and I had Pat Hinkin and with the Orioles uh, later in his career. And I, I, for me, you know, he was unbelievable. I mean, you played with him um, and you were friends and Pat Hankin to me was exactly what any coach would want to have. Cause this guy was the epitome of, of uh, what a pitcher should be for me. I agree. And uh, Hint is, he's a great dude. I still talk to him and everything like that. He was my roommate coming up and, does everything you you ask him to do. Um, that open-minded thing, too, and, and just a worker. No problem with, with Pat. Yeah, he he was open. He'd won, By the time I had him, he'd won a Cy Young Award. He'd had a long career, and he came over from the Cardinals as a free agent and signed with us. And I remember talking to Tony La Russa. Tony La Russa still had his jersey hung in his locker, in his uh, in his office. Wow. And that's what Tony thought of him just to, for a brief time of having him in, in, with the Cardinals. Just uh, very open-minded um, for a guy with his credentials and experience. Uh, he was a coach's dream because you could make suggestions and, and talk to him about things and he could put them right into play. Yeah. And uh, just a terrific guy. I love that guy. Um, who, were, who were some of your mentors throughout your career? Okay, uh, I'll, I'm going to break this up in two areas. I'll start with the playing mentors, and okay. um, the first one I had as a as a pitching coach was was Guy Hansen, and he was with the Kansas City, and he was 
he was more in tune, you know, with your delivery. He was the first pitching coach, Mark, that actually would have a stopwatch and time my delivery. And he would say, if I fell in this timeline, I had my best rhythm. I synced everything up. If I was a little bit long or, or too quick, you know, that's when I wasn't good. So, I mean, the delivery aspects with Hanson were, were real good. Wow, he taught you your, yeah. your rhythm. Exactly. Yeah. And then and then you go to uh, this guy. I mean, I can't say enough. I, I had him as a pitching coach with the with the Royals and the Orioles and the, <laughs> the late, great um, Bruce Keeson. Um, you talk about old school. Yeah. The, the, this this was old best, school. Man. Yeah. <laughs> and he taught you um, – not to have any kind of fear. It doesn't matter if you had your A game that day or you had your C game. Um, when you cross those lines, you know, you, sometimes you had to fake it and you had to be bigger than what you were. And if you had to, yeah, if you had to, you know, come up and in, you come up and in. And it, the whole thing is you use fear as an advantage on the mound. And it does work. Um Guys that didn't, have, especially back then, guys that you did, they didn't have the armor that they wear now. And and you came in, they didn't like it, and you use that to an advantage. And and Keeson really, still they still don't like it, and we don't pitch inside enough. I agree, and that's one one thing that I had to do to be successful. And if and if I had to, you know, if I had to, you know, I guess you say if I had to throw at somebody, I'd throw at somebody. And it, it would help. You me. know what Bruce used to say, <laughs> because he was known for. Well, he said he said I didn't hit as many guys on purpose as the people thought I did, because because <laughs> he had a low slot. Yeah, he got a lot of tail, and he said, but I used it to my advantage. Yeah, and he says, but Mark, when they charged the mound, this is what he used to say. He says, you've never lived till you tasted your own blood. <laughs> yep, that's what he, he used to say. That I used to just crack up. No, I I remember in 99, I made the big league team out of spring training. I had a great spring, and then I struggled the first month. And then went back to Rochester, and um, we played that annual exhibition game with um, the big league um, team. You know, the Orioles came down and played the one-day exhibition game. And Keith comes over to me, and he just said, Hey, Lent, how you been doing? And I said, you know, I started off real good, Keith, and then my last three games, it's been a struggle. I have no no problem getting ahead. I, I'm struggling putting guys away. And the first thing he says is, have you thrown at anybody's neck lately? <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I just go, you know what? I haven't. And it was funny because the next game I remember, it, I, I hit three guys in, in a game just trying to go in. And when I was ahead in the count, and then the game after that I hit two. And the game after that, I hit one. So I had six hit batters in three games. And I reeled off. I think I went like six and one with a 1.9. And I, and I was back in the big leagues. You know, it's amazing. You know, it's it's absolutely true that, uh, you know, like some old school stuff really matters. Yeah. You know, and, uh, you know, I know the game's changed, but there's a toughness that a pitcher has to be if you want to be a major league starting pitcher. And that um, that's you're you correct. Know. I mean, and Keith had that toughness. And you know what? And I know you said the mentors on the, you know, my playing side, Mark, 
and then you know i i went into coaching right after my playing i mean the next year i was coaching and i had you know the mentors obviously the first one that sticks out is bob apodaca and he taught me a lot um there there's no manual how to be a pitching coach there's you know you just you you're immersed into here's your guys take care of them this is what you got to do and you know after my first year i i really talked with dak a lot and just the the positive influences he's he has on individuals and then the other one i mean i definitely have to say you mark um with the with the delivery stuff really honing in on on again what we just talked about the rhythm uh, you know balance and timing it's just all part of the delivery and between you and app i think that it's just it made me truly into a a, a better pitching coach well you know it's it's funny i uh... It's it's funny because it's, you mentioned Keeson and Bob, and you know those are two of the guys that that I look at as, as they were really good friends, and we had a lot of common denominators about our philosophies. And uh, you know it's 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 great to have guy, and I think that's why you've had success because that open mindedness to listen to different opinions and learn stuff that you'd never heard before, even though you'd played forever. Played all over the world, you know. You're constantly learning, and I know when we brought some of the analytics into the game with the Rockies, and now you, you know, you've got a lab. I saw is just completed, yes, uh, pitching lab. But the one thing that even when I was there, and I know the way you believe is that that that's a tool to be used, but it's it's not supposed to be the all end all. No, and you know, obviously you know, old school, going back there, you know, a hitter would come on, you know, come back to the dugout after they just struck out and they're just going, wow, fastball gets on you in a hurry. And well, that just tells you, you know, now you look at the numbers, he's probably got a high spin rate and, you know, or, or his release is a little bit, you know, later than others. And, you know, now the, all the data and everything just, it tells you what your, your eyes are seeing as a pitching coach and, and and it, it clarifies everything. Uh, Doug, I, I, I had a question, you know, I, and you and I and Mark, and you just mentioned uh, Bob Apodaca have lived uh, pitching in Colorado for years. And it's hard to explain to others what we as pitchers and pitching coaches and scouts live through trying to figure out success in course Field. Um, you know, just, you know, I mean, we've all been in the meetings going from going back to Dan O'Dowd. You know, what what's going to play here? Is it going to be sinkers? Is it going to be this? You know, I, I think we usually come to the, it's the individual that goes out and competes and doesn't let Coors Field beat him. But, um, you know, just talk a little bit about, you know, how, how we have to develop different type human beings to go pitch in that place. Well, and you're you're correct there, Will. It's just the mindset's different. And as a starting pitcher, you know, we, obviously, if you're pitching in Colorado, you're not going to most likely you're not going to lead the league in the ERA. Even though I know, you know, Kyle Freeland had probably one of the best years ever. The year he, I think he was third or fourth in the Cy Young voting, yeah. but 
but um, it takes somebody that your job on the mound is to beat the other guy who's pitching against you. Just be better than him. Right. And um, stuff diminishes in, in Colorado. And, you know, for example, you know, you, you take uh, – I can't even think of his name. You, you, well, you, you take a pitcher on the road, and if it's a three-pitch mix, um, fastball, slider, changeup, you got a triangle – and you go and take that those same three pitches, and that triangle shrinks. It shrinks in in Denver, and everything's smaller. The brakes are smaller, and it is easier to hit. Yeah. Um, vice versa, you take our hitters who can hit, you know, high average in Colorado. You take them on the road, and now these pitches that that triangle that shrunk in Denver now opens up again, yeah, and now it's- they're. Yeah, they're facing pitches that move more. It's so it, it's so hard to explain to others what we live through when you know we get home and we're watching us play, and you you get frustrated, but then you you realize how hard it is, you know, and you know you go, well, we, we can't throw curveballs, but Pedro Astacio did, and so did Jeff Francis, and they won there. Um, you know, it's just all about having the right guys out there that compete. And uh, having the right hitters that, that that can go on the road the first couple of days and you know get back into a different rhythm and realize what they have to do, but it is not easy at all. I re- I remember Darren Holmes saying that he, you know, he was a curveball guy, and he said I learned to pick up a, a different location, yeah, to throw my curveball off of when I was in Colorado, and he says it really helped me, but. You know, having said that, and Doug, we've taught the pitchers there in Colorado for years, and that uh, we emphasize the toughness, we reward toughness. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the other thing is in Colorado, and I think some people don't realize, you have to adjust more often and quicker. Right. Because if you're not getting the ball in on a guy and you don't make an adjustment right away, that next pitch is not going to get in far enough, and that's when the damage is done. Yep. Or vice versa, wherever you're going with the pitch. If you throw a curveball and it's, it didn't, you didn't get through it, you got to make a major adjustment on the next curveball you throw. If you don't, it's not like you can make small adjustments when you're not in Colorado and you can achieve success. But in Colorado, you got to make quicker, uh, quicker adjustments and and more often. No, and you know it's just if you got a if you have if you're a pitcher on the road that your vertical break is, you know, twenty one inches, twenty inches, which is elite. Colorado, it's only gonna it's gonna be seventeen. It just it, people just don't realize that that right. what is being subtracted when you pitch in, in in Denver the horizontal break and vertical break everything and. and it's just it's a disadvantage, but you know. You know when when Colorado first had team the first few years, obviously pre uh, humidor, they uh, I talked to guys that I had come and pitch for me for for Cleveland uh, for Cleveland. Uh, I remember Oral Hersizer coming in there, and I said, "Hey, Oral, how was it pitching in Colorado?" And he goes, "Mark, I threw a sinker every pitch," and he says, "And I tried to keep it lower than low." And just move it in and out. He says, because my breaking stuff didn't break, you know, nothing seemed to work. 
you know, back then everybody was complaining that, I mean, everything straightened out, breaking because of no humidifier, uh, I mean, no humidor for the balls. So the balls were slick and it was even harder to throw breaking balls in. So, you, you know, over time now I see pitchers actually have success against us in Colorado visiting pitchers. It always astounds me. Yeah, it is. But I mean, you know, on the other side of that page, a lot of these pitchers, they don't want to pitch in Colorado. No, you know? True. And that's that's another advantage that we should should have. Again, just being better than the other guy in the dugout. And that's what we need to do. No, that's a really good point. No, no that's exactly right. We, you compete. we do have that advantage that we know that place better than anybody, especially our guys who've been there. Uh, I guess my bitch, and I always bring it up at all of our meetings, <laughs> <laughs> I think we need to pitch inside more than we do, um, especially there when I look back. The 07, we went to the World Series. We, we pitched inside, and – you know, at times it seems like there's almost the fear. Yeah, you know, they're, they're they hit home runs the right center field just as easy as they do down the left field line in that place. So uh, I think you need to really move the ball. You need to mix. You need to do all that stuff. But it's hard because it is frustrating because the ball doesn't move and do the things that it does in other places. You know, yeah. it's funny. Uh, when the pitchers hit in the National League, you know, it was real obvious if the opposing pitcher hit a double or a triple near the, at the end of an inning and didn't score. Right. And he went back out to throw the next inning and inevitably he gave up runs. Yeah. It was like it, the altitude took so much out of him. Yeah. Yeah. So I used to get excited. I used to love it when they hit an extra base hit. Oh yeah. The opposing pitcher. Cause I said, Oh, he's going to be in trouble next inning. Right. You know, you know, our guys on the other hand, I used to say, take your time, man get regroup because we knew how it affected us. But, you know, now, now there's no effect as far as is something dramatic, like hitting an extra base hit anyway. Yeah. Well, I think I, I think I don't have too many more questions right now. I got a, I I made that big list of mine. You you crushed right through it, Mark. Uh, I crushed it. We had uh, Doug, we've kept you for almost an hour. Will, do you have any extra questions for Doug? No, I, I, I don't, Doug. I appreciate you coming on and look forward to seeing you. I think next month we got our meetings out there in Denver. Yes. And uh, wish you and your family a Merry Christmas. Uh, and, you know, I agree with uh, Mark and you, you know, that uh, you've been a great guy to work with who uh, is always uh, uh, fun to talk to and, uh, you know, just uh, – just a good teammate as far as being a Rocky for, for my years. Well, I, I really appreciate that. Will, and I, I enjoy what I do and yeah, you know, I, I walk in those doors at salt river fields and it's, it's to get guys better, get them to the big leagues. Hopefully, um, you know, just if we can make an impact on, on these guys life, if it's on the field or whatever, that's what we have to do yeah. because it's the first time that some of these kids are away from home. And we just, we got to get them better somehow, but I really appreciate it. And it'll be, it'll be great seeing you again, Will, at the, at the Denver Summit. I run into you every now and then. Yeah. (laughs) Let me say, I will, I, I I was very jealous that you only had to watch the starter that night at Salt River Field (laughs) because that game ended up 18 to 12 and I walked out. (laughs) 
there four and a half hours later. Oh, I I know. It's funny is that, you know I watched our starter pitch and then um, I checked the box score the next day and I'm going, holy cow! <laughs> yeah, you, you go, uh, hey, well, I'm going to get going. I'm like, where are you going? <laughs> Stay for the fun, right? Yeah. Uh, hey, I will say I will say one last thing is that you know, Doug is an unbelievable organizer. He spring training instructional league. I mean. This guy handling all the pitchers. I know any pitching coaches that are listening to this know that it's not any easy task when you got a ton of pitchers and you want to make sure they get prepared for the season or they learn things they need to learn um, and have the time to do it and organize it so they have the time to do it. Um, and then with all the other things they have and running them guys through labs, you know, showing them video. Uh, you know that's quite a task when you're organizing uh, the workload that a that a professional pitcher has to do to in order to have a chance to be his best, and he does an unbelievable job. Yeah, I, I appreciate that, Mark. And it, it is spring training is the toughest, and you know how it is. Is you got everything organized, and big league um, pitching coach comes over and says, "We need this guy, we need that guy," and it throws a, a monkey wrench into everything. Yeah, I know. You know. <laughs> it's funny how at the end of the day, after the long day, even after the major league game's over, you're in you're in the uh, coach's office with the major league staff going over what their needs are for the next day or the next few days, and and uh, so you can stay on top of it all the time. It, yeah. it, it was really really helpful. I know Fosty really helped. Uh, it, it really liked it, and uh, I know Daryl does too. Yeah. I try, I try to I try to keep that going. So I'm glad. Thanks for recognizing that, Mark. Yeah, no no problem. It was easy to recognize. You you can tell Doug by your delivery even today uh, that you're a very good teacher and you you know how to communicate through words. Uh, we're an audio show only, and you painted a great picture today of uh, the landscape of what you do and the relationships you have. It's not an easy task in in one hour to do that. So. We appreciate. I have one question for you, if you don't mind. Uh, no problem. More than ahead. Um, you know, we've got a big audience here. Uh, we have kids on seventy-four countries that listen to us. Um, we're connected heavily with Little League Baseball, uh, so we have a big grassroots following. In addition to the MLB front offices, but you talked a little bit about the, you know, the analytics, the technology, the input that professional guys are having with other professionals, like you know, you, Mark, and Will, around them to help make sense of it. What's some advice to these kids nowadays? Because they're they're receiving the same amount of input out there as as uh, professional guys are, and they're trying to absorb it with parents that you know they're not the same kind of guide dogs. And I'll just kind of leave it loosely at, at that that you, Mark, and Will would be for these professional guys. So, advice for some of the kids and parents out there that have all this input at their disposal now. You know, what's your advice on how to use it, if at all? The big thing is just keeping it simple. Uh, you could really, you know, you could pull something out of a bullpen session or a game session and go down rabbit holes that you don't, you don't need to go down. Um, I would really focus on one thing is just, just being able to command for the young kids, being able to command just the fastball. You can do that and then, and then mix in one off speed pitch and then try to really develop those two pitches with the data that you're given. Um, like I said, you, I mean, some kids you, you'll get and you say, well, I throw a fastball, cutter, slider, change up, curveball. And it's just like, you don't need that. 
not at this this junction, a young kid. Um, so I would just say, just keep it simple. Look at the the data, maybe just on your fastball and one breaking pitch, and try not to try not to go down these rabbit holes. That's, that's good advice. You, you know, Doug, I, I actually heard a really good uh, phraseology on that the other day. Is that uh, if you took a giant funnel and there's so much data at the top of the funnel and you funneled in like the two or three things that are actually going to help you as the player become the best pitcher or hitter you, you're going to be. Because there is so much data that you can go down so many rabbit holes. And, you know, I've said that, you know, when I've seen some of the data packs, I go, my gosh, it's like taking an SAT test before every <laughs> game. I, you know, you know, your mind can't process all that and go out and perform. And I think you see that where you see the paralysis of analysis on given nights with certain kids. Oh yeah, and and the one thing too is like I said, you know, keeping it simple too is yeah. And 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 Mark and I we talk we talked about it all the time is just being able to repeat your delivery. Yeah, and yeah. if you can if you can see where in in these cones on on the wrap soda or the track man where you, where your arm slot is where your release point is just try to keep it in the same place instead of you'll see young kids they want to drop down they want to do this no yeah. just develop and repeat a very sound delivery yeah and then you'll be tunneling yep <laughs> there you go i knew you're gonna bring that up <laughs> yeah doug through all our shows we often come up with all the analytical terms and uh, that that we have different terms for that we always used. Right. Yep. Nice. Somebody think... invented a twelve six curveball this year too, Doug. It wasn't, it wasn't Wiley. It wasn't Wiley. <laughs> it wasn't yeah. Mark Wiley or Jim Palmer. Oh, I got to I got to tell one last story here. The first time the first time I ever saw Doug, Doug and I always laugh about oh. this. I, first time I saw Doug, I was coaching for the Indians, and we had one of those teams that had a. 299 team batting average with a million home runs and stolen bases. We had one of the best offenses maybe in the history of the game. And Doug was starting against us with Kansas City. And, and you could say, well, what was it? It ended up being 10 runs or something, right? Well, uh, I, I can I can give the story real quick here. <laughs> give the story, and then I'll tell you what my comment was. Yeah, so we, we were going into Jacobs Field at the time, and it, I believe it was the 95 Indians, the, your World Series team. And um, I had to start on three days rest when one of our starters got hurt. And I was still classified as a rookie then. So what am I going to say? No, I'm not going to start on three days rest. So um, went out there and started on three days rest. Um, the first guy I got out in the lineup was Tony Pena. And he batted ninth. So <laughs> the first inning, um, about four runs into it, Keeson comes out to the mound and walks out there. And he says, hey, Lint. I want you to turn around and look at the bullpen. So, you know, I turn around and look at the bullpen. He goes, nobody's getting up. You got to get somebody out. So, you know, I, I wound up giving up eight runs in that first inning and then um, two runs in the second inning, 10 total. Oral Hershiser's pitching against us. We lose 10 nothing. And it's funny, back then, you know, we don't have cell phones or anything. So I get, get back to my hotel room. And my phone's ringing off off the hook. And I got buddies calling me and they go, hey, did you watch ESPN tonight? And I go, 
why in the heck do I want to watch ESPN? <laughs> and they go, no, you're the lead in story. You got to watch it. I go, okay, I'll watch it. And, she, and that's when Berman was still doing, you know, ESPN. And I turn it on at two 30 in the morning. And sure enough, there's my picture in the top left corner. And they, they're starting to show the Indians crossing the plate and Berman's going one little, two little, three little Indians. <laughs> Oh shit! Hey, well, this is this is my st- side. Well, of the I, well, yeah, and I forgot that the, after that happened, I retired the next fifteen out of sixteen to get into the sixth inning. Yeah, and, and that worked good oh. for me because because during that first inning, Hargrove and I are sitting on the bench, and you know, runs are scoring, hits are falling in, and and I'm sitting there and I'm watching Doug like a pitching coach would. And I go, you know what? I like this guy, Grover. And he goes, what are you talking about? He says, he's given up like five, six hits in a row or whatever. And I go, no, no. You know, this guy's grinding it, man. I said, he's not looking for help in the dugout. He's not whining. He's not showing bad bad body language. I said, he's just grinding it, man. I said, I love guys like that. Well, then as the game went on, and then he threw and like like Doug said, retired like fourteen out of fifteen guys. I said, "See, I said, look at this guy. How many guys would have been able to do that, Grover?" And he and he had to he had to agree. He said, "Yeah, I see what you mean." I said, "Yeah, mental toughness is a big part of the game." And so I never really came across Doug again until uh, I went to the Rockies and 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 uh, we worked together. So it, I I told him that story the first time I saw him. I said, "Oh, I know you're a grinder." Yeah. <laughs> I That's just, awesome. I just, ty- I just tired out all those hitters the first two innings. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know what? <laughs> Going back, it would have been a few years later. You probably would have hit a few of those guys. Oh, well, you know what? It's funny. Is in '99, I pitched against my my last win in the big leagues in '99 was against the Indians, and um, I, I think I pitched in the seventh inning in that game, gave up one run, but um, Jim Tomey the next day and. and I, I don't have I couldn't say enough about this individual. I don't know him personally, but uh, we're stretching and Tommy comes over to me and just he said, What a great job I did the other day. And I was it meant a lot. And I couldn't, you know, a, a, another guy and another teammate doing that and Tommy doing that. It was pretty it was classy, very classy. Yeah, he's he's, he's one of my all time guys. He'd be on my all time team with Hinkin. Yeah. I could put a team I should write down all the guys that I want playing behind me. <laughs> I guess I'm not on that because you traded me. I <laughs> traded your ass. Well, well, you guys had me nervous. So I'm glad that story had a happy ending. <laughs> uh, yeah, it did. It did. Yeah. But uh, Doug, thank you so much for coming on. I mean, a wonderful show. Our audience got a treat today. They always do with Mark and Will. And there's such a thread of uh, connectivity with their guests. You can tell the relationships were important to them as you know, they're great baseball guys, but the relationships they bring to this this podcast, including yourself, are just phenomenal. It gives our audience an extra treat. So thanks for, for continuing that trend with these guys today. We appreciate you so no, much. No problem at all. I, I enjoyed it. I appreciate yeah. you you having me on this show. Yeah, and Mark and Will, great show. Episode 398 here, uh, helping us get closer to that 62,000 mark. We were at 3,000 last year at this point. So we've climbed. We've grown quite a bit. Audience, you guys know what to do. You don't know. You don't need me to tell you. You know how to pump this show up on iHeartRadio and get us into the new year on the right 
right trend. Blackout Coffee, be awake, not woke is their slogan. You got the guys' codes there, Mark W 20 all caps, Will G 20 all caps. Uh, get you 20% off checkout through the year, and these guys are going to have coffee on them in January. Ted Kubiak's book, Old School, How to Feel the Ground Ball. Make sure it's on your baseball shelf in the new year. You definitely need it. With that, episode 398, I'm sorry, 397 in the book. We'll have 398 a little later with the sauce. He uncovered the Florida State Board of Trustees meeting. I don't know how a junior high kid gets in there, but he did. So we got some audio for the audience today. So, But uh, thanks so much, guys. Have a great holiday. Stay on, Doug. Thank you, yeah. Pum, pum, pum.